Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. Today I'm joined by Michelle Gellin. She's an Irish writer who was born in County Tyrone and is now based in Dublin. Her first novel, Big Girl, Small Town, was shortlisted for a number of awards, including the Costa First Novel Award, the Comedy Women in Print Award, an Irish Book Award, and the Kate O'Brien Award. Michelle has published many short stories, including in Dyslexia, The Stinging Fly, and Ciphers. Um, and her new novel, Factory Girls, is out now. It's set over one summer in 1994 with when Maeve and a small group of her friends are waiting for their A-level results, working in a shirt factory and wondering if they'll escape the deprived border town where they, are bo- where they were born. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Fanny. <laughs> I would absolutely love it if you wouldn't mind reading a short extract from Factory Girls. I, we don't always do this on the podcast, but there, there is such a strong, strong voice in this, which is so incredible. Um, so do you want to read a little extract? Sure, I will. I actually quite like reading from this book, you know. Oh, excellent. So I'm going to read a wee bit slightly, you know, basically the girls have been inducted into the factory. They've done their health and safety, okay, but now it's the real test. They have to have their first tea break, okay. So uh, Maeve, Caroline and Aoife scrambled to their feet, but they were still the last to arrive in the steamy canteen. They joined the tail end of the queue as tables filled up with people clutching mugs, brimming to the lip with tea, chewing on toast and smoking fags. Maeve had never seen so many people work so hard at eating, drinking and smoking before. Soon she had her own toast, soggy with margarine and a mug of scalding hot tea in her hands. She sat down at an empty table and started to eat. She'd only bitten into her second slice when the bell rang. Across the room, people huffed, crushed fags out and then scraped chairs back and got to their feet stretching. As everyone moved to the doors, Maeve crammed her toast into her mouth and then she eyed Aoife's untouched plate. Not hungry. Um, don't like margarine, Aoife said, wrinkling her nose. Maeve grabbed a slice and Caroline snatched the other. Then she blew in her tea and tried to take a sip, but it scalded her lips. Fuck's sake, she spat. Go heavier on the milk, a culty sounding fella said from behind, startling Maeve. He sidled up to the table, looking just as farmer as he sounded. You want your tea as warm as cow's plash, he said. Then you can pour it down your throat. Well, now, that's something they didn't teach us in school, Maeve said, grinning. There's plenty you didn't learn in school that you'll learn the hard way in here, growled an older woman who'd the look of a leather glove dried out over a too hot radiator. She rose to her feet and started hobbling to the door. What's cow's splash? Aoife whispered. Maeve sighed. Aoife often needed country talk translated. Cow's pish. Aoife still looked at Maeve blankly. He's saying your tea should be the same temperature as bovine urine. so brilliant I have to say I was on the tube when I was reading that section and I could not (laughs) stop laughing and it was to the point where I would say be warned reading this book on public transport unless you're okay with laughing very loudly I have got that from a few people people saying they're reading on a bar or reading it on a beach or read it wherever they're reading and they start like laughing and then they're like oh my god stop (laughs) (laughs) well let's talk about the humor first because like your first book big girl small town which was also incredibly incredibly funny um I mean it's 
humor is incredibly difficult to write. I, I could think of literally a handful of writers that I find incredibly funny. You are one of them. But I would just like to, yeah, do you, is that, does that, is that just naturally how you write, do you think? Or is that something you've had to work on? Oh, I, I honestly think it's how I was raised. You know, I, I think I was raised in this um, sort of, I grew up in Northern Ireland in the Troubles, so it was quite sort of intense and, and, and at times violent and scary. And humor was used a lot by the people I grew up with as kind of coping mechanism. You know, it's that kind of thing that you do. It's kind of, I just think sometimes in, in sort of oppressive environments or violent environments, humor is this really important coping mechanism, a kind of survival tactic. Um, but then also like after the troubles, I had a fantastic group of friends um, who were just really, really into like making, we were into making each other laugh, you know, we were really into like, let's go out right now. Somebody would start telling a story and then we'd all be laughing, but contributing. And it always felt like a really creative, humorous dynamic. And that was really important to me. Um, and I, I always loved um, British sitcoms as well, like a huge fan of Only Fools and Horses, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, Black Books was brilliant as well. Like I'm really into these kind of forms of humour where it's not, say, just somebody monologuing and delivering just yeah. this big thing, but people all having the crack and and, and, and kind of like, is it, it's not stand up. What is it? It's um improv is it yeah I guess yeah. so yeah yeah I guess you would call it that um and so just total tangent would you ever write tv because it feels like to me you would be an amazing screenwriter oh I um, so like years and years ago right I used to work for the BBC but I wasn't even in the tv thing I was in the um their website their internet section very long time ago and I wrote this really like I mean it's hilarious but like really really weird screenplay about punishment beatings it's kind of like when we had the ceasefire in northern ireland you had to stop shooting each other so all these punishment gangs you used to punish people for things like stealing cars doing drugs or being gay um they all had to stop shooting their victims and then they had to like sort of evolve into like buying baseball bats and drills and doing all these really horrific punishments so i wrote this very very darkly funny screenplay and then i wrote nothing after that but i will admit that um we're currently working with a major broadcaster on the TV series of Big Girl, Small Town, which I'm loving. Oh, my God, I'm that's just so exciting. And are you part of the team, a writing team? Are you able to, are you, well, initially, you to I was, initially, I wasn't, right? So first of all, I was like, oh, my God, somebody wants to option my book. That's so amazing. And then that, that someone was Kathy Burke, you know, the legendary <laughs> Kathy Burke. No. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I totally, you know, could my dream get any better? And then the broadcaster came back and said, we're curious to see could Michelle write this and so I did a test script and passed that test um, I am so not surprised you passed the test <laughs> I just see when I both of the books I see them I can see them very visually that your dialogue is just so on point and actually you know those are strengths that even the most incredible writers don't all have those particular strengths. So I can see how you translate well. to. Uh, I'm going to put my hand in the air here. When I first submitted my um, Factory Girls manuscript to my agent, it was 127,000 words long. And my agent was like, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> just no, <laughs> just no. And then I think I got it down to 105 or something like that. And then at this point she was like giving up on me. So she sent it, you know, to like, I only had a one book deal in the, in the first instance. So she sent it to my American editor and my English editor. And they were like, 
No, Michelle. <laughs> and I think we got it down to 95. So we went, we, we lost, you know, over 30,000 words. And I think that's a big thing. I, I, I definitely can write so much and I love writing, but actually, and, and, and the incredible privilege of a second book was having editors all around who mm. were really strict about what was on point because Big Girl Small Time was very much written with my friends. I, I was living and working in Belfast. I had a fantastic friendship group. Me, you know, I used to go to the pub and ambush people. I would be like, oh my God, I wrote a thousand words and I'm just going to read them to you. <laughs> okay, Michelle. <laughs> I mean, I, I put characters in that book. I put like my, I, you know, did my friends' names and stuff. I wrote characters. We, we had this thing. I felt I had this incredibly creative group dynamic with the first book. The second book was very much, you know, um, it was really shaped by my agent and then by having two editors on the on the script for every pass that we did it was incredible so that was a positive experience for you then to have that kind of level of support because some people I guess might find that too much pressure like to have those people just ready and waiting for it I think it's kind of freeing I think it's going to depend on your um, personality type. So the first thing I had was Factory Girls was that the Arts Council of Ireland had given me like a small bursary to take time off work to complete it. And I really wouldn't have done the book if I hadn't had the bursary because Mm -hmm. the pandemic had just hit. Like we were homeschooling two kids. There was not enough time in the day ever, ever, ever would there been enough time in the day for me to write and do my tech job and manage the kids. So it's entirely due to the Arts Council that the 127,000 words got there. Um, I think because I'm a bit of a people pleaser and I think that's also a comedy thing. You want to make people laugh and you Mm -hmm. want to the most explicit form of I like you is somebody laughing with you and so I I think when I have people saying we can make this better then I'm very much into the idea that you make it as good as you can because I'm I'm not great with rejection (laughs) yeah oh that no that's great that it was a positive thing for you I will definitely put a link to the to the arts council the Irish arts council in the show notes as well because um it is really incredible there are some I know there is some with the um with in the Arts Council England as well. I'll put both of those in the show notes. Um, there aren't that many places that um, writers can go to get grants. Um, the Society of Authors in um, in the UK also has some grants. You usually have to have published already, which you would have been eligible for. But um, but I think even the Arts Council England might even have some that are for people who haven't yet published as well. So I'll put those all in the show notes. I think it's so important, isn't it? Because we can talk about... Um, sort of writing and stuff till the cows come home. But the fact is, you know, we need to pay bills. We, uh, So many of us have children. Um, we've all been through a pandemic. <laughs> the reality is that sometimes you do need some way of being able to push paid work away so you can concentrate on the writing. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, knowing that somebody believes in you and mm. is going to hold you accountable is a really big deal as well. Because if you could kind of say to yourself, somebody's taking care of my bills for eight months, you know, um, but they're expecting something. You know, do they want to see something at the end of the day? And mm-hmm. then you think, well, I re-? and also part of this is, do you want your dream to continue, right? It's like writing one book is hard enough, but writing another, and then you've got, it, it feels like this kind of spinning plates in the air thing. Um, yeah. But definitely having somebody kind of either applaud or encourage you or, you know, tell you you can do it is a massive, massive thing. But um, I, I'm a big fan of cash on the table. Yes, it's true. And in fact, also, it also sometimes works the other way around as well. I've just paid a lot of money to do a master's. And in a way, that's just given me absolute fire to get what I'm working on finished. 
because I sort of almost mentally gave myself the year to just go for it with the project because I've paid all that money. So I'm just going to go for it for a year. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think it goes both ways, doesn't it? I'm like that. So when I when I um, submitted Big Girl, a small town to the Irish Novel Fair, which is how the book got picked up in the first place. So the Irish Novel Fair is this um, basically an open competition. You pay 50 euros to enter. They read every the first 10,000 words of every manuscript that comes into them. Then they'll put 23 as being longlisted. And these longlisted scripts all get excellent feedback, you know, in-depth feedback on what worked and what didn't. And then, then I think it's about 15 novels go through to the actual pitching session. No, sorry, 10 novels go through to the pitching session where you get to meet 15 agents and publishers. And so I made a deal with myself that if I didn't get picked up at the Irish Novel Fair, then I was going to invest in a creative writing master's because I'd never done one. And I felt like I needed support or a structure or something. But in the event, I got picked up at the Novel Fair and having your editor and agent is that really strong support network. And then I started meeting other writers as well because I didn't have a writing community in Dublin. Mm. Um, and this amazing sort of set of friends and writers and artists I'd had in Belfast I, I hadn't got that anymore and I kind of like I still have I've never had anything as, as good as that since but I feel like it's really important to me to have other people to kind of bounce off and other people mm. to talk to and other people to kind of support you on those battle days because yeah I yeah. 100% agree I mean this is part of the reason I started the podcast as well because at the very least even in your early days if you don't feel quite ready to go meet someone in person just listening to other writers talk about all of these things energizes makes you feel less alone with it as yeah well. well let's talk a little bit about Factory Girls itself now um so I mean, one thing that I found completely fascinating as someone who didn't grow up in the area to kind of really dive into was this real nuance with the power balances that happen. The factory is a mixed factory, which doesn't mean it's mixed gender, which of course it is. It didn't mean it's mixed religion. Um, I really loved, in fact, that um, the section where um, Aoife has gone for her Cambridge interview and they say she's gone to a mixed school and she's horrified and saying, no, of course I didn't. And they mean gender and she means religion. Um So, yeah, I really loved the way that, first of all, everyone sort of gets along in a certain kind of managed way, but then tension builds and then it releases and then it builds again and it's constantly shifting. Um, It it was really completely fascinating to me. So where where did that come from? Did you have a similar kind of experience where when when you were a teenager where you were exposed to that environment for the first time? Well, yeah, so I, I grew up in... Um a very divided wee town and it was almost equally divided between um, Catholics and Protestants. There's only 3,000 people in the town but the interesting thing was we we had separate primary schools and separate secondary schools. Of course you had your separate churches. Some of the shops were separate. You kind of had a Catholic news agent and a Protestant one, you know, and some of the shops were mixed but like mostly you knew what side of the town to stick to and we used to be sent on these kind of like get to know a Protestant type weekend trips thing, um, you know, mixed success. Um, <laughs> but when I when I went to Trinity, actually, when I went to college in, in Dublin, it was the first time I really got to meet people from all different kinds of walks of life. But I went back home and worked one summer in a shirt factory. And it was the first time in my life, in my town, that I was thrown into an environment where I got to meet the other half of the town, you know, like there are all these people that 
you'd maybe seen in the street, but you certainly never spoke to. Like, you know, the kids that you'd only seen in the other uniform and or people and like this is really appalling, but people you might only have seen on the TV in a news report because somebody had been shot. Um, because in my town, the, the Protestant community experienced a great deal of violence. You know, it was a border town. It was very conflicted. They they experienced a lot of, yeah, a lot of loss. Mm-hmm. And to be in an, an environment where suddenly these aren't just faces on a TV that you could feel distant from, but real people who are missing missing someone they loved or or people who were maybe feeling the need for revenge or people who had a lot of anger and grief and all of these feelings inside and just you know it it felt like a really intense atmosphere in which to work and it took me a long time really to come away from that and think well why were we in separate schools like you know why was everything so segregated why were the housing estate why was everything so deeply segregated and remains very segregated Mm. um and I think that the education system, for example, did a great deal of damage to community relations mm. in the north. It was there's a bit in the book where they um, where they've got a new contract in the factory, and so the um, my favorite character, Andy Strawbridge, is my favorite. Um, he's their their English boss decides to take them all out for a drink, and there's there's, there's a lot of debate about where is safe for everybody to go to drink, and um, and some of the things that happen on that night are just completely mind-blowing in a way just the way that in like the tiny tone change in tone of voice or the way some of the characters eyes move around the room there's just you can see you can feel the tension growing and growing and also and the on the flip side some of them are completely relaxed because it's a mixed group they know that they don't well they're pretty sure they won't be a target that evening because there's both sides in the one room um it was it was completely <laughs> it was completely fascinating to me I think things like that are something that my generation just grew up with. I mean, when you were, and and I think this is the terrible thing about that generation. My parents, I used to get bored of my parents saying to me, it wasn't always like this. We used to be friends with Protestants and I'm going, well, we aren't now. And I, for a long time, we couldn't, I couldn't see just how unusual and damaging that whole situation was. Um, And so for me, the idea that, I mean, I can remember when I was doing my master's over in Stirling in Scotland, I had to come back to Belfast to do some research. And I can remember going for a drink in the pub and there'd been a shooting not so long before that. And I remember walking into a pub that was absolutely empty, was completely empty. And I was like, okay, what's going on? But I turned the corner because I was like, I know I'm not going to drink here because there'd been a shooting. And I wasn't going to drink in that part of the pub because if you walked in, that's where you were going to get shot. And I turned Mm. the corner and everybody was around the corner. Mm. And I just thought, I can remember at that point thinking, like explicitly, I wasn't on autopilot. I yeah. I explicitly noticed what people were choosing to do as a, yeah. and and it's not going to be every bar, it's not going to be every town, but it, often enough that some of that became autopilot, and that's pretty. Yeah, it's not normal when you look back on it. Yeah, but it's it's really incredible reading from the perspective of someone who it is normalized. Um, and I think that's what's so interesting as a reader is to kind of the the girls may particularly, but the girls generally are so are so kind of accustomed to it that they're you know the fact that they are choosing to to drink in a certain part of the pub so they don't get shot if somebody comes in. Um, it's so natural to them that yeah. it doesn't really phase them. But on the flip side, I think the thing that was so interesting to me when um, when when there's a when there's a mortar attack on the news in another town and it triggers some memories of a pretty 
bad experience that Maeve had as a child being in a mortar attack and the kind of way that her parents' generation reacted to that with almost like a numbness, like a kind of, you know, they kind of shut down, didn't want them to go to hospital, put them in the bath, pick the glass out of their hair. It was all very matter of fact. You're fine. Don't worry. You're very lucky. Aren't we all lucky? We're not dead. I'll be lucky. Um, and just those two contrasting things that the kind of normality of, of kind of, um, you know, having to choose where you're going to sit in the pub so, so you're safe. But then the flip side of experiencing your parents kind of almost shut down in the face of trauma um, was those two things together was so interesting. Yeah. And I, I think that's very true in a trauma situation where you don't see any end to it, where you actually know there's going to be another mortar attack and it mightn't be your town, but another town and there's going to be another one. And there's a bit in the book where they, the parents at the end of watching the news about the other mortar attack in the other town, they're like, well, now we had more injured in our town. You know, it's almost this competition that you were, oh, that you did better now or you had it harder. This this idea, of, um, I forget there's a proper name for it, but it's something to do with trauma. And trauma survivors often minimize somebody else's trauma. Mm. And it's something that, again, has taken me a very, very, very long time to realize that just how uncomfortable I felt around people who hadn't been through trauma that was comparable to mine yeah and how you know how they feel invalidated like so I I learned to be silent pretty quickly once I left Northern Ireland because you invalidated other people like if somebody said I'm feeling really bad today because you know I I have a headache and you're like oh yeah I'm feeling bad today because one of my friends got arrested for um planting a bomb you're like no you're not trying to you're trying to share on your little level but Trauma is a complex thing where you can make other people feel invalidated if, if and you're, you're and yourself even more isolated when when people haven't experienced what you've experienced. Absolutely, because yeah. you might share a story that you think is hilarious that time that such and such happened, and then the police came, and then there was the riot squad, and everybody's kind of sitting around, sort of laughing, but but going, that's not normal. That's no. not normal. No. Yeah, it's the bit where you're telling this story and nobody comes on board as in nobody contributes because mm. it's so far from their experience and it's almost like a monologue but yeah I think in the book it's really interesting to write a story from the point of view of somebody who doesn't yet have that perspective it's kind of like Maeve knows that London is going to be different and she mm. kind of knows from the magazines that like it's more interesting to write about cocktails than it is to write you know investigate paramilitary shootings but she's only got this idea that it's going to be better. She doesn't know for sure. And she really doesn't know how, I think, how unnormal her life is. Yeah. And that bit to me was fascinating. The three girls, um, one is planning to go to university locally one, and two are planning to go to England. Um, and the thing I found fascinating amongst the girls was the way you explored the class differences between them. Caroline is um, is her family haven't worked for a generation. Um, Maeve's very much working class and Aoife, their friend is um, upper middle class and very wealthy. And, and she could literally go out, get any, go anywhere. She could, her parents could leave at any time and they, they've chosen to live there. And so her experience of the troubles in a way is very different to, um, to the girls who are very much kind of consider themselves stuck in that town. Um, it's interesting, this idea as well of, of Maeve choosing to go to London of all places, you know, not to go to the Free State, not to go to Belfast, um, 
both of those places, you know, have very good universities and she's chosen, she's choosing London um, and feeling like she has to defend her choices to a lot of people as well. <laughs> but also this idea that she's going to the place of her oppressors as well. So I, that was very strong in my community, this idea that, you know, that you should go to an Irish university. And I remember when I got my A-level results and I'd assumed I was going to Queen's. Well, actually, I'd originally assumed I was going to art college, but I didn't get in. Um, so then my fallback was Queen's, but I'd also applied to Trinity College. And I got enough points to get to Trinity College in Dublin. So I ended up going. But I can remember walking down the street in Strabane after I got my results and somebody shouted across the street to me, I heard you're a turncoat. And I was like, what? And he's going, going to Trinity, the Prada University. And I was like, okay, you see, because although Trinity is Irish, it, it was a Protestant university mm, originally, wasn't it? for yeah. Protestants. And actually, but so is Queen's. <laughs> wasn't it? Mm, yes well but it's in the north right yeah. so it's in the north whereas trinity for a long time is kind of still the bastion of kind of protestant you had ucd versus trinity you know you yeah. had the catholic university and then you had the protestant one so in many ways there was this idea that we were all like bread for exports you know we're like northern irish beef we were just going to be bred to go off to wherever um so going to live and work or study in england is a really difficult, complicated thing to do, particularly when you come from a community which would consider yourself occupied by the country you're going to go live in. Mm -hmm. And I think that does a really dangerous but interesting thing to your psyche. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing Maeve really clearly feels, and many of her friends do, is, is that you know, going to England is a difficult, complicated thing to do. They're your oppressors. It, you know, they haven't been very nice to her community for a very long time. They don't particularly respect her culture. But she has a very strong feeling that the people down south who claim to want to have a united Ireland actually aren't that interested mm -hmm. and don't think that Maeve and her friends qualify properly as being Irish because they're not proper Irish. You know, you're mm -hmm. Northern Irish. It's a different, more dangerous thing to be. And I think that sense of there being a border around Northern Ireland I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think that border certainly separates us from the 26 counties or from the Republic of Ireland, but it does separate us from the rest of Great Britain as well. I mean, we don't have abortion rights. We don't have the same rights that people have in Great Britain. There's a lot of stuff that works very differently in Northern Ireland. And yet there is a big push from part of the community to say, well, we, we want to be British. We are as British as British can be. Um, but it doesn't entirely work that way. You know, growing up in Northern Ireland, you knew you were different. You knew that your situation wasn't normal, but it takes a long time to realize just how not normal. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I did. I also just found that idea of, um, you know, I think in a place where the, there is such a divide um, and so much violence and stuff, um, exploring as well the, the differences within the Irish Catholic community was so interesting. This idea of how much class and money also comes into it. Um, because Eva's family had have so many options um, and Maeve's and Caroline's families do not. And I think Aoife, Aoife feels that there's a point in the book where Aoife talks about being scared to fail because there's a lot of pressure on Aoife, mm. right? She, there isn't actually, there's just her and her brother in her in her family. And she's almost got that sense that, you know, um, because we haven't talked about Maeve's sister, Maeve, Maeve's grieving mm. for her sister who who died. And, and that's another reason why Maeve maybe doesn't want to go to Belfast is she associates it with her, her sister's death. And 
But there's this idea that if Maeve's mother and father have so many children, then, you know, you only need one or two to succeed. You don't need them all to succeed. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think Aoife has that attitude, whereas I think in, in real life, most children, no matter how many there are in your family, feel not just a great deal of pressure to succeed for your parents, But actually, competition between siblings can be Mm. absolutely dangerous. If you just have the two of you, I mean, it's like a boy and a girl and you go and do your own thing and hope that you're relatively successful. But if there's like six or seven or eight of you, it can be quite intense, this idea. And I mean, fighting for attention as well as for success. Right. I mean, you know, that's a lot of that's a lot of attention to divide between. But it is. And giving all that attention when you yourself maybe haven't been given attention and when you yourself are feeling or when you're grieving or when you feel stuck or when you are in a place that you don't want to be I think like the idea of parenting in a conflict situation where you know Maeve's mother explicitly is trying to keep her four sons out of being involved Mm. she doesn't want them to join the IRA she doesn't want them to get involved in any trouble that's like a full-time job just yeah I was going to say that does seem like as well you get a sense in the book of like just managing the op- like the kind of lack of opportunities slash potential for trouble in a town like that when you have four sons um, is incredibly intense and probably takes all her time. It, and, and you know what? I think it must be a really boring job. I mean, yeah. who sits down and thinks, when I grow up, I want to make sure that my boys don't get the neighbours pregnant or join the IRA. She probably didn't want that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when she got kicked out of college um you know because this is a woman Maeve's mother is complex right she's yeah. hard as nails but she, she's no idea about how to cope with grief um she's someone who did get to university but never finished so there's this long history in Maeve's family of being really clever really hard and not achieving your potential um so it's an interesting yeah it's an interesting burden to place on yet another generation it is and a different kind of burden than Aoife's carrying which is the pressure of um of sort of her the pressure she feels to succeed which you very much feel with every interaction with her mother is there is a huge amount of pressure to succeed um so the setting for a minute as well 1994 more and more novels are coming out for around that time my theory is it's because we're all getting to our 40s now and so we're all that that generation of us who were teenagers in the 90s um are using this time now to really explore what happened when we were young um there's been some great books um do you think that's what it is do you think that that's what our fascination is with that era now I think that possibly there's a population bump I'm not sure about that but I know in Ireland like people around about my age are the fattest population there is not in terms Mm. of weight but actually we're the population bulge we're the bit where you know you still have big families and you can expect people to have a lot of siblings so there's a lot of us I think that our generation's probably in more influential positions right now. Mm. Whereas we're in that really nice spot where you're not an old fogey. Um, you can talk about your youth and you can talk about things. And I remember when my parents used to talk about the 60s and 70s and I thought it was super cool and I wanted to know more because, you know, I'd been born in the 70s, but it had this glamour to it that mm-hmm. I couldn't quite reach. Um, so I think there's that going on as well. And um, yeah, and I think that, I think we may have got a little bit better of commercializing niches like this. So I don't think it's particularly a niche, but if I now want to find a book set in the 90s that features Brit pop and say an alligator, 
probably find that genre. <laughs> they're pretty good. I mean, like if you go onto Netflix and stuff now, they are very, very good at kind of going, here's the sort of thing you might like. And I think that for me, exploring the 90s stuff, because I recently read, is it Tiapolo Blue, which is, um, oh, James Cahill, I think, wrote it. Mm-hmm. And it's this story, completely nothing like Factory Girls, but the same era. And it's this Cambridge Don who's repressed gay and he gets kicked out of Cambridge or he leaves under a cloud and he goes to London and takes up this job in a museum and everything just continues to go bad for him. But he he kind of does blossom a bit, you know, he he experiences more things and stuff. But I was like, I was in London in the 90s. And for me, it's just, I'm like going, oh my God, I drank in that pub in Soho. And, you know, I'm able I really to enjoy of, doing that. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you just read a line and suddenly it all explodes open. But equally, I love reading books that are set in an era that I know where I'm just going, I, it's it's just so different to what I remember. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think 90s literature, though, yes, it's having a moment. But is that because I'm having a moment for 90s literature? I feel like I'm having a moment for 90s literature. Maybe yeah. that's it. Maybe we're just <laughs> searching it out. We're just searching yeah. for it oh, it's so like you know is you know when you're you're not pregnant um but you just suddenly decide to get pregnant or you're trying to get pregnant and then suddenly all you see is pregnant people yeah like just everywhere all it is that's, is it. Almost, that's yeah. it we just I'm just seeing 90s everywhere and I'm yeah. loving it lapping it yeah. up <laughs> <laughs> but so let's go back a little bit further um you started out initially writing short stories so um did you start then sort of by pub started by publishing some of those short stories um and then and I know Magella in uh, Big Town, Big Girl, Small Town started in a short story as well, didn't she? So what what was the point at which you decided to kind of um, try long form? So short stories, like I started, I think I can remember the first one I wrote or the first one that lit me up was that I was about 14 and my teacher asked us to write something about snow. And I can remember writing this story about walking outside to feed my dog at home and it had snowed and I was just me and the dog were like, whoa, snow. And it's like a really simple little story. But when I was writing it, I was like, so in the moment and loving it. Um, and then I wrote a few more short stories and, and one which was based on a real life event where my my dad and my granddad were on the bog and got caught up in, a, in, a, in an attack on British soldiers and they got shot at. And I wrote a version of that as a short story, which won the WH Smith Short Story Award when I was a kid. Um, and I got to meet Ted Hughes. In oh, London. wow. Yeah, I know. It was unbelievable, except I didn't know who Ted Hughes was. <laughs> I was just like, who's this big wolfish man? Um, so I was doing really well with the old short stories and writing away. And actually, Factory Girls was the first thing I intended to write as a novel. Um, ah. And I was living and working in London in the 90s, the tail end of the 90s, when I I, I got encephalitis, which left me with like diffuse brain, brain damage. So that kind of put the brakes and everything because I like, I, I, I literally didn't know my second name at that point. Like when, when my dad picked me up in Dublin airport that, that Christmas, like I was in a, in a wheelchair. So I spent quite a lot of time at home, like a good year at home and another year down in Dublin, just trying to get myself back to um, functioning in basically my, my aim was always to be able to earn money again. You know, so that I wasn't reliant on my parents or a disability payment. Not that there's any shame in that, but my own personal goal was I I, I thought I could get back to earning my own money. And um, so I started writing short stories again because my memory was still really bad. And I was like, I can do short stories. I can mm. if I, I, I kind of thought if I can write something all in one go, I can do it and then I can edit it. 
but I was very frightened of writing a novel because mm. it's so big. It's so big. Yeah. It's so big. It's what, 90,000, 100,000 words. And if you can't, if you were like me at one stage where you couldn't remember having your breakfast, you know, literally like I, my, my first attempt to write after my brain injury was a diary where I would literally write, you've had your breakfast. It was cornflakes because if I didn't write that, I'd either not remember and then go and have another bowl of cornflakes and mm-hmm. then another bowl of cornflakes, or I would just assume I'd eaten and then not eat. Mm. So like just very basic diary stuff got me back to writing. But when I wrote double tub, which was a short story, I wrote about it kind of overweight guy and a chipper who lives with his mom and his dad's missing. And he's like, basically he's got this really sad life. Um, but when I finished writing the short story, I was like, Oh no, 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 I'm not finished with this world. And I took a month off work and wrote 70,000 words in a month. Cause you know, Penny, like I had really cheap Belfast rent <laughs> and I had a job where I was freelancing. I could take that month off. Oh. And I had like, brilliant friends and I did NaNoWriMo, NaNoWriMo, yeah. National Writer Novels in a month and it was brilliant. Uh, it took me three years to finish it, mind you, because I scattered attention, right? <laughs> 10 years to get it published but I thought, I I'm, I always thought that being able to write the 70,000 words in one month and just completely obsess about the novel was really important to me Yeah. Um, and yeah, I didn't get to write Factory Girls in that same way but that intense burst thing, this kind of thunderplump of writing a book was massively important. And so when when you got your agent, which happened through the um the awards, um, and you sold Big Girl Small Town, did you immediately start talking to her about I want factory girls to be the next thing? No, I think I had like pretty much had a nervous breakdown and went away and hid and the pandemic happened. <laughs> oh, the pandemic, of course. Yeah, because it was uh, February 2020, wasn't it? I put it my out. book out in February 2020 and I, I mean, I I quite, ha- like I'm hypervigilant, right? And me and, my, me and my husband had been watching the news about the new coronavirus in, from December 2019 because I just had, I, I for some reason, I got um, pneumonia that autumn and was ended up in hospital for 10 days. I, I nearly died of pneumonia. So we were really sensitive to the fact that I get small infections and they really wipe me. Um, so we were like watching this, this virus thinking, we hope that's not a pandemic because that'll have a big effect. Launched the book and I, I can remember feeling that we were racing against the clock to get this all out. And I literally did my last launch. I think it was, I remember it was a Saturday I did my launch. And then that Monday, I think it was Monday, the 12th of March, we pulled our kids out of school because we we just had a really nasty feeling about it. Mm. And of course, now we're all trying to learn to live with the virus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but at the time, the book went out, the bookshops closed, everything, mm. all those like festivals and things that I was supposed to, like the author's dream was all like snatched away. And um I think personally, if it hadn't been for the Arts Council saying, hey, you asked for money before the pandemic. <laughs> and then they give me the money in the pandemic and less money as well than they had intended because they wanted to support as many authors as oh, possible okay. at such a rough time. Um, then I'm not sure. I mean, I wouldn't have had the time or the energy between my tech work and, and homeschooling. If I hadn't been able to step away from it, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, but Factory Girls was sitting there. The Arts Council said they wanted to see it. So that was my that was my impetus. Mm. And now you're currently working on TV adaptation, which is very exciting. But is there another potential <laughs> novel happening in the future? 
Oh, uh, you see, I think I, you know, the more I talk, I think the more I think I may have an attention deficit disorder, but um, I'm working on three books, Penny. Oh uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yay, yay, because I'm thrilled to read all of them. <laughs> right, well, no, so so one of them I've been working on for ages, right? Because like, bear in mind, like people are like, oh my God, you're so prolific. I'm like, two, two books in two years. And I'm going, I wrote Big Girl in 2006. Like, yeah. like, uh, like, you know, this, this is 20 years really, but I, I've been writing a memoir for um, a long time and I'm about 40,000 words into the memoir, but you see my problem with my memoir is it's zero crack. It's like, oh, here so are you worried that people are going to pick it up and think, oh yeah, Michelle again, yeah, she's Michelle Michelle again. <laughs> and she's just like, well, I got brain damage and then all these bad things happened. And I mean, I know there's a really lovely outcome in the long term, but yeah. going back into trauma, it takes, yeah. I I have learned I need to be in a good, strong, safe place to go back into trauma. Yeah. And I definitely need a bit of work before I would go there. Yeah, um, especially after the last couple of years, I'm getting yeah. so right. Yeah. 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 So this is very much about, is this the right book to pick up again? And at the moment it's not. So I'm also writing a book about a death obsessed, extreme Catholic girl growing up in the 1980s. So the 80s is my new era. Yay! <laughs> I, love, I do love the 80s too, because the 80s were just freakier than the 90s. The 90s we were all, it was a lot cooler, but the 80s was like just desperate, you know? Um, <laughs> Um, so I'm writing that one. I mean, just like I grew up in Tyrone in a really conservative Catholic family, but I also grew up in a parochial house, you know, like I grew up in a house where priests had once lived. So it was very sort of just really interesting atmosphere. So that's going on. I mean, that book's all about a girl who reaches the limits of, you know, what death means and what healing can do. And, you know, that kind of, you know, when you're a kid and you believe in, magic and Disney mm. kind of what kids do now but back then you had to believe in the Virgin Mary and Lourdes and all this kind of it wasn't so much Disney as you know Jesus yeah um, <laughs> and I'm also writing a book so the book I am writing at the moment which I'm really interested in is about um and I feel for Maeve when I think of when I think of this book I think of Maeve you know you know you grow if you grow up in a very intense claustrophobic kind of crucible environment um and you grow up in a big family as well you see when you leave like you're very unmoored it's very hard to have a sense of home that is as powerful and overwhelming because mostly people don't give as much of a shit about you mm. <laughs> once you leave home. Really, it's your brothers and your sisters and your mom and your dad and your granny and your granddad and everybody living in one little space that can give that very intense but overwhelming experience. So this book is all about what it means to leave a very monocultural world mm. and then land yourself in the likes of London or Paris or even Dublin, all of which are very you know ethnically mixed. And then what does it mean to build your family? Like, how do you build a family? How do you build a childhood for your kids and for yourself? Sorry, build a childhood for your kids and build a home for yourself when mm. you cannot in any way recreate or go back to your home. Um, and it's very much kind of, it is informed by, you know, like I, I, I'm i married to, you know, a French Moroccan 
um, guy and we have mixed race kids. And that's also a, quite an interesting thing to mm. um, experience in Ireland where, you know, I had I was going to, I had to grow up and marry a Catholic, you know, just as long as he wasn't related to me, but it had to be a Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my, my mum, my mum's family, my, my whole mum's side is Catholic. And yep. um, my, I remember being really surprised when she told me when I was a kid that she didn't meet a non-Catholic until she left school and was working. And this was in Melbourne. It wasn't in a segregated society. Um, and I remember finding that really shocking, but because my family's mixed, I never even, and my school was quite mixed. I'd never even um, really thought about it until she told me that. Yeah. But yeah, and, and like, you know, I have mixed race children. I'm growing up in a, across the other side of the world in a completely different kind of place. The environment you know, the city versus where I grew up in this kind of sort of slightly semi-country idyll. Um, it couldn't be more different to what I had as a child. And it is really interesting, isn't it, this idea of like um, creating something new when it's not been your own personal childhood experience. And then the burden of wondering, are you doing the right thing? Mm. You know, um, we bought a house in Dublin and honestly what our deposit was would buy you a house outright in Tyrone. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like there yeah. are there are all these things where you sit and you go, how am I in this city? Like, why am I in another place? What are, yeah. are the, what are the consequences going to be for my kids? And I suppose giving up some of the, um, is it control? Do you know, it's not that you're trying to control, but you have to eventually throw your hands in the air and go, I, do you know what it is? When I was growing up, you, you went, the only marmalade we ever had was made by my mom. You just, there was no question of shop bought marmalade. There was one kind of marmalade. You ate that for 18 friggin' years. And that was the end of it. And now when I go to the supermarket, there's like 19 different kinds of marmalade. <laughs> and, and which one do you yeah. And they've got like whiskey in them and some of big chunks, little chunks, no chunks. And then, oh my God, I, I said, every time I send Mehdi to the shops to get me marmalade, he gets me the wrong one because there's too many marmalades. And I'm basically going, my problem is there's just too much marmalade, as in there's too many choices when you could say, why aren't we living in Berlin? Why aren't we living in Cape Town? Why aren't we in New York? So you never feel that sense of security that you felt as a kid when you didn't have choices, actually. It was your mommy's marmalade and it was on your toast and you got that in the morning time and that was the end of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Oh, well, this is all stuff I'm completely obsessed with. So I can't wait to read what you're writing. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, I could chat away to you, Penny. I, could I know. I bought of wine and just just let it all out. I know. Well, we will have to do that at some point, definitely. Um, oh, Factory Girls is it is just so incredibly funny and incredibly heartbreaking and beautiful. Um, which, yeah, it's just all the emotions, all of them. Please, please, listeners, buy a copy. And, yeah, don't read it in public if you don't like embarrassing yourself with laughing out loud. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Penny. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country if you've enjoyed this episode don't forget to subscribe or follow and please leave a review it really helps others to find the podcast